This live show is brought to you by listener support at Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube. On this episode, I once again talk about the reappearance of Robert Hoagland, the murder of two billionaires in Toronto, the illegal tracking of a mayor, and a whole bunch of other stuff, including how someone thought I was a rock guitarist. I'm Ed Densel, and this is Unfound Live for December 19th, 2022. Hello, everyone. How is everybody doing? It is the Unfound Live Show for December 19th, 2022. And uh, we got six days to Christmas. I completed my Christmas shopping today. And luckily for me, uh, when I do Christmas shopping, I just do it all from my computer. <laughs> I think it's safe to say if it were if the world were up to me, there would be no like retail stores. They would all be extinct. They would have been all boarded up. All the malls would be gone. And it's kind of I guess the way we're going in retail anyway. But um, I got it all done today. I did some this weekend, and then I got the rest of it done today. And uh, so that's good to have that all be done and out of the way. And so if you're not yet done with your shopping, you may want to think about getting it done. You're running out of days, people. Before I get started, even before I really get into anything, uh, even before the business stuff, um, some of you are very aware that there was some file problems uh, starting, it seemed, on maybe Saturday and then continuing right through uh, Sunday evening into Sunday night. And as I, when I became alerted to it, I, I looked into it, making sure that it wasn't any problem on my end, and it was not. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the part one, the Colonial Parkway Disappearances part one file that I uploaded to Megaphone or anything I did there. This was a um, hosting-wide issue for it seems to be Megaphone. It was not necessarily a, uh, a Spotify, even though those two are intertwined. I think it was a Megaphone issue and not a Spotify issue. The weird part is it didn't seem to affect the downloads at all. It, my perception is that for periods of time between, let's just say, Friday afternoon when probably it started and very, very early this morning where I when I think it got fixed, it seemed there were periods of time where, where everything just worked fine like it should, and then it would go back to messing up again. So I think in those periods where it was working fine – People, it was automatically downloading to people's devices and whatever else. The issue was that if you went to play it 
uh, found this would have not just been the most recent episode, Colonial Parkway's Disappearance Part 1, but any of Unfound's episodes going back to the beginning. If you would have gone to play any of them during these periods of time where things weren't working right, it would play for a little while and then it would just stop and your timeline would go to zero or it would start playing. And if you tried to move the timeline forward, say you're at the five minute mark, you try to move it to 20 mark, it went 20 minute mark, it wouldn't do that. So a lot of uh, bad going on there. And on top of everything else, unfortunately, Megaphone did not have any techs. Uh, they don't have techs who work during the weekends, which is something I discussed with the person, uh, email exchange uh, today with the person who, of course, found me and Unfound originally earlier this year. And uh, so thankful for that. But she even said, yeah, you really need to do something about that because she can't go what would it be 48 hours or 72 hours, whatever it would be and having a problem like that and not have somebody on call or something like that. So it was not, there was not anything I could do about it. I I did try to upload the file again, just to make sure that the file wasn't corrupted, but it had nothing to do with anything. Um, anything that that it was under my control. I think it's working fine now. I don't know what the issue is. I don't know what the issue was. I don't know if they'll ever tell me, but I did send them quite a few messages this weekend describing um, what was going on. And what I also noticed was that probably the only people there, of course there are a ton of podcasts on Spotify but they get to Spotify through different means. For example, even before I went with Megaphone, I was with Podomatic. Well, Unfound was still on Spotify. And um, my perception is the only people that were having problems were people who were with Megaphone. So if you're with somebody else, some other podcast hosting company or uh, ad placing company, whatever you want to call it, and your podcast also played on Spotify, you had no problems. It was only podcasts that were actually hooked up with Megaphone because Megaphone was the one having the problems. What the problem was, I don't know. To my knowledge, this is the first problem I've had with them since I started with them in March. Now, I understand this past summer, they had some outage for a while, and I don't even remember that. Uh, but I certainly will remember uh, this one. So for everybody listening or watching here live on December 19th, 2022, if you were having foul problems, that was the reason. It was not anything on your end. It was not anything on my end. It was was something in between us. But it's sorted out now. I, like I said, I, I don't know what the issue was. And probably even if they explained it to me, I might not understand anyway. So... But if I find out, and I think it's, I think it, it is explainable, I'll let all of you know what it, it is. Because I know some of you were like wondering, you probably some of you out there were wondering, is something going on with my service, with my app, with my phone, with my computer? You probably were all wondering, hey, is it me? It wasn't you. It's not you. And it's like, what's that saying? It's not you, it's me. Well, it wasn't even me either. It was somebody else. All right. 
let me uh, just say hi to everybody who is in here, uh, and then we'll get uh, we'll get on track here. But I just wanted to start out with that because I'm guessing some of that was on a lot of people's minds. Hello, Karen. Hello, the real from Australia. Uh, the real says I finally got around to watching the Josh Gimon episode of Unsolved Mysteries last night. Okay, I got to watch that a while ago. Hello, Valerie. Hello, Mark and Indy. The Roracle. What's going on, Roracle? Good to see you. Deborah, good to see you. Hello, Kathy. Look at the, with the Christmas trees and everything. That's pretty cool. Jill, moderator Sheree, how are you with the, the little pink purplish hello hand? And Veronica, hey, Ed. And hello, everyone. Hope everybody's week has got to a good start. Hello, Veronica. Moana. Hello, Lisa. Hello, I missed last week because I was partying it up in New Orleans. Well, imagine that. Ate so many oysters, earned no beads. I love oysters too, Lisa. Uh, Deborah saying Stitcher was fine. Well, that's interesting. Amon is saying lots of podcasts had issues. Uh, news to me, but okay. Uh, didn't know about that. Hello, Betty, and hello, Candy. Thank everybody. Uh, thanks to everybody for making time for this live show tonight. Of course, give this uh, live show a thumbs up, whether you're watching live or watching in the replay. Thumbs up is very important to us as we move into uh, 2023. Do not forget to do that on your pod, uh, on your application for YouTube, whether you're on a phone or a tablet or a computer or whatever else. Maybe you're watching on your TV, as some people do. So uh, you have to uh, maybe uh, figure, I don't know, can you do that on TV? I think you can. But please don't forget to do that before the night is over. Please join. Please subscribe. We're almost to 15,000 YouTube subscribers. I don't know how much that means, given that despite having 15,000 subscribers, these videos on YouTube, or at least the episode videos, get maybe, what, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300, like one-tenth of the subscribers watch. Maybe it just could be because they all just get it, uh, the audio. That could be the, the reason, but that's going to be a conversation myself and a couple of my assistants are going to have next week. I'll get into that later. But share this uh, channel with anybody you think who would like it. If you'd like to join, hit the button below. If you'd like to monetarily support us, you can also also monetarily support Unfound by hitting the Super Chat button below. That is the, I guess it's a rectangle now with the dollar sign in the middle of it. If you'd like to monetarily support Unfound, that's an easy way to do it while a live show is happening. And then, of course, there's Patreon and PayPal. Hello, Barbara. And then there is uh, Nephew Charles getting in a, a couple minutes late tonight uh, with the rock on and the Santa emojis. Very neat. So uh, what has been going on uh, with me? Let's just start uh, right here where I, I do a lot of times. I did get out to had some time to throw... Uh, the discs, uh, the end of last week. So I went out there and practiced at least a little bit. I better start practicing because January is going to 
get here fairly quickly and I'm not going to be able to practice for eight days because I'm going to be in Pennsylvania. But I have, uh, what, a, a tournament? These, I guess it, technically it would be the second or first. The first full weekend of January I have one, and then I have another one in January, and then I have a big one in February. So I'm going to have to start uh, doing some practicing. So just a lot of things have been taking up my time, yeah, especially including these this two-part episode that we, were right, we are right in the middle of. Parts one of two and one and two of the Colonial Parkway disappearances. I put a a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work uh, into this over the last couple months, and that surely has taken up some of my disc golf time. Maybe I'll get out tomorrow, maybe maybe Wednesday before I go to Pennsylvania on Thursday. So it just could have taken some time off. And in fact, I can tell you, I. I took so much time off that when I went and through last the end of last week, my my like pectoral muscle. I'm, remember, I'm left-handed. Uh, right in here was kind of sore the next day. It just shows you that it hasn't been used for a while. That is really really odd. Uh, so that muscle has just kind of uh, not gotten a lot of work over the last couple months. And then I go out there and throw for an hour, hour and a half. And the next day it's like, Ed, what are you doing to me? So hopefully I can get out tomorrow or Wednesday. And then when I come back, I'll have a week to maybe figure something out before I have to um, go play that that Friday, I guess it would be. That would be the like the, what is it, the 5th? No, the 6th. I have a one-day tournament on a Friday that I'll be playing. So there you go. Moving on, uh, as I just mentioned, going to Pennsylvania. Going to be leaving Thursday. I'm taking Spirit Airlines, flying from Tampa to Pittsburgh. My dad's going to pick me up. And already have made some arrangements of what's going to be happening New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. And so on New Year's Eve, um, I'm going to be get to, getting together with my brother Michael and his wife, Charles' other uncle. Charles in the chat, his other uncle, Michael. Uh, my dad and I and Michael and his wife, Patty, are going to get together for dinner that evening, which will be neat. And uh, so uh, we have that all arranged. I think that's supposed to be like 5.30 on Christmas Eve. And so that'll be good. Uh, we're going to be meeting at a restaurant I've never been to before. So I'm really looking uh, forward to that. It was uh, something that my uh, brother Michael, an idea that he had you know, said, hey, if you're going to be coming up here, we should all get together. And so that's what we're going to do. I actually had like two or three or four different things that my dad and I could have done. Uh, we were invited a few different places and uh but this is what uh we're going to do then on christmas day my dad just told me today that he and i are going to a buddy of his uh back in my hometown of leechburg uh, maybe many of you know that my dad does not live there my mom my mother and father moved from my hometown what was it at the end of like 2004? They live near Butler now, but on New Year's or on Christmas Day, 
Uh, he and I are going to go to a friend of his who lives in West Leechburg. And so we're going to have dinner there. And that is, go- I'm sure that's going to be a good time. My dad ex- surprised me with this today. And so I'm really uh, pumped up. This is one of my dad's good friends. They've been friends for a long, long, long time. They've taught together. And uh, so we'll be having, I guess, a Christmas dinner there. And it'll be interesting. Uh, I, I know this friend of my dad's, although I've not seen this guy in a long, long, long time. I know who he is. And it'll be interesting to catch up with him. He's like, of course, around my dad's age. But I think this guy and his wife, uh, they have at least one daughter. I think she's going to be there with her husband and kids. So that's what we're going to do for Christmas Day. Now, what's going to be interesting about that is coincidentally where this guy lives is only like two doors down from where one of my ex-girlfriends lives. So that should be interesting. Uh, don't think I'm going to go knock on her door, but she does live in that house. Uh, so I'm going to be right down a couple doors away from her, but also though, right around the corner from where, uh, we'll be going on Christmas day is where one of my best friends, Brad lives. Um, he, uh, he and I lived in Las Vegas together. We, I, I was actually, he and his was it was it was eventually his wife. I was their roommate for a while before I got my own place. He's originally from Leechburg, and he actually moved back there in what was it, 2013. So he lived. Uh, he moved to Las Vegas in '96, I think it was. I moved there in '98. We lived together. I got my own place. Continued to hang out all those years, and then I moved to Florida in 2011, and then he moved back to Leechburg in 2013. Well, he lives only right, like right around the corner from where I'll be on Christmas Day. So I anticipate that I'll go over. I've already talked to him about it. I'll go over and see him. So that'll be neat. And I also found out that Dave, uh, the guy I went to college with, where I went to stay, I stayed with him and his family in Illinois for the big disc golf tournament back in July. Well, I found out he's going back to see his family in western Pennsylvania. Uh, during this time as well. And coincidentally, his parents only live about 10 minutes from where, from where my dad lives. So lots of people to see, things to do while I'll be back there. Uh, going there on Thursday, December 22nd, coming back to Florida on December 30th. And my brother Brian... He's going to drive me to the airport and pick me up. So that's what's uh, that is what the plan is. I do anticipate to um, don't think there will be any problems getting next Fridays or whatnot this coming. For, but two weeks from now, that'll be update episode number thirteen. That is something I'll be working on while I am in Pennsylvania. I don't anticipate. Um, any issues there? You know that I've been up there before and got episodes done, so I'm I'm used to doing that. So that's uh, who knows what else will pop up. I I did know I do know that Brad and I made uh, arrangements to get together 
um, maybe that following week, maybe that Tuesday or Wednesday, he wants me to go to this wing place. There's like a new wing place in the area. And he says, Ed, you got to try it out. So I will head probably back down to the Leechburg area around Tuesday or Wednesday to meet up with him for dinner. And you just never know who you're going to run into. Like when I was back there in late January into February, I went down to see Brad and we ran into a couple people that we went to high school with. You just, just never know. I just tend to forget how many people um, still live in, in, in that area. So you never know. Just not see somebody you haven't seen in like 30 years since maybe, maybe even since high school. So that would be over 30 years. You never know. So moving on, um, I got a funny story. I posted this on my personal Facebook page earlier today. I was heading out. Um, I had to go to Publix today to get a sympathy card. Very uh, sadly, a guy uh, who I know very well, hung out a lot uh, in in the 1990s. Um, his mother died uh, this past weekend. So I went out and got a sympathy card uh, to send to him today. And I, I mailed that out. But so I was leaving my condo here and took the elevator down to the second floor because I wanted to see if I got any mail. And that's where the mailroom is in this building. And there is a, a woman who is a cleaning person here. And so we just, I've talked to her before. I've ridden on the elevator with her before. Very friendly, but just kind of, you know, two ships passing in the night. I'm going one direction. She's going the other. But today I was passing her and I was just, hey, what's up? And she stopped me. She stopped in her tracks and she asked me, I just have to ask you something. I said, sure. You know what? You know, it didn't seem like a, a very odd request. She asked me if I was the guitarist in Docking. Now, maybe for some of you don't even know who Docking is, and that's fine. But Docking is a band. They're still around today. They still tour, but they were a very popular band in the 1980s. Um had quite a few hits, quite a few songs that still get played on terrestrial radio today. You could certainly find their music on Spotify and YouTube, everywhere else. They're a pretty big band. One of the, I guess you'd call a hair band from the 1980s. Uh, they were named after their lead singer, Don Dokken, D-O-K-K-E-N. And uh, some of the songs they had were like um, Alone Again and Burning Like a Flame. And they also did the theme song to the one Nightmare on Elm Street movie, uh, Dream Warriors. So they did a song called Dream Warriors, uh, but had a lot of lot of great lot of great tunes. And I'm a, I'm a fan of them. Not as big a fan as I am of like Iron Maiden or Judas Priest, some others, but certainly. And I have a Dawkins shirt that I just wore recently. So <laughs> she stops me and asks me, "Are you?" The are you are the guitarist in Dokken? And just because I know that music, uh, I said, You mean George Lynch? She said, I said, I am not 
George Lynch. Uh, and so then we ended up, you know, I, I'm Ed. Her name was Ronnie. And then I, we just started having a conversation about music. And she likes a lot of the same music that I do. Um, like Judas Priest. We talked about Kiss. We talked about Def Leppard. We, of course, talked about Dawkins. But I eventually did tell her what I really do, of course, this podcast and all the work that I do, uh, reporting on missing persons cases and investigating them, researching them, and then bringing them to you, the public, interviewing family members. We we had a conversation about that. But then she even admitted to me (laughs) that a few weeks ago, the last time I guess I'd seen her, it's been a few weeks she actually went over to the building manager who I know, or the assistant building manager. Her name is Tracy. I know the assistant manager uh, much better. I think we've had a couple different building managers since I moved in here, but the assistant building manager has remained the same. And so she's been here since day one. So I, I tend, I think I know her a lot better. Well, this, this woman who I was talking to, very, very friendly woman, had a great conversation. Anytime I can talk to anybody about music, as you've seen on this live show, that uh, that's right up my alley. She admitted that she went over to Tracy, the assistant building manager, and asked if there was a famous guitarist who lived in the building. <laughs> and Tracy was like, not to my knowledge, maybe secretively, maybe secretly, secretly, but Tracy was like, not to my knowledge, well, that's who Ronnie was talking about. She was talking about me. And she admitted that to me. It was very cute. And we had a good laugh. But this does, um, this does kind of reinforce something that I think that I've noticed for a while now, because at least now here right now in the 2020s, era of course not a lot of men have long hair you go back maybe to like the 90s it seemed like more guys had long hair and then it kind of went out of fashion maybe came back you know me i'm gonna do my uh, own thing anyway i don't care about styles and fashion and things like that so i think when people see somebody a man that 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 is doing what I'm doing, they automatically think I must be in a band. And it very well may be that this is maybe somebody famous, some famous rocker. And so I, I realize that I do get that kind of look once in a while. And even when I'm at Publix or at Starbucks, you know, there, it does, and I'm not usually paranoid like that. I'm usually in my own little world, but it does occur to me that probably some people are thinking that when I'm sitting in a Starbucks doing my work or going to trivia or whatever else, and being that this woman said this to me only reinforces that idea. So it's kind of funny. But so we had a really good, uh, cute. Uh, conversation about that. Now, I will tell you, if you look up George Lynch while this live show is going on, I don't think that we look anything alike. But I sure wish I could play guitar like he does, though. So that was uh, that was a pretty good story. But I have to tell you, 
I don't think that that is the first time that has happened in the last few years since my hair get started getting longer that somebody asked me. They weren't as pointed in actually bringing up an actual real musician, but maybe asked me, are you a musician? Are you, are you in a, a big band? Are you touring? You know, I have gotten those questions a couple different places in the last few years, but never somebody actually thinking I was actually a, a actually real live naming an actual musician. And it was even funnier that she named a musician who I actually knew who she was talking about. So there's that. Uh, the Oracle says, sounds like a very busy Christmas. This is going to be a very busy Christmas, the Oracle. I'm sure that time in Pennsylvania is going to go very fast. The Oracle also says, I can see the resemblance to George Lynch. Really? Okay. Deborah with the guitar emoji. Melissa says, what a great compliment, Rock On. Now we have to call you George, at least. I will know. Don't do not call me George. Julie says, that is Superman, and he knows what's happening. R-E-M. Not the biggest R-E-M fan, Julie. That kind of reminds me. It's like a college band. Um, really was not really uh, into them. A couple good songs, but but still, if you're an R-E-M, fine by me. I'm not. It's not a put down. Fine by me. Deborah says, ask her out. Uh, Deborah, I don't think so. Um, play Superman by R.E.M. I'll have to look that song up. I, I don't, I'm not even sure if I know that song. I know some R.E.M. songs, like the one that goes Leonard Bernstein, whatever that song is. Um, I promise, uh, Melissa and Julie, I will look that song up after we are done tonight. And so that's a funny story. And a couple other things. I need to ask all of you, of course, every time Christmas time rolls around, the big question is, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Is Lethal Weapon a Christmas movie? Is Trading Places a Christmas movie? Are those Christmas movies in your uh, idea of culture? Do Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, and Trading Places pass? as Christmas movies or not. Of course, all of them take place during Christmas. Uh, they're, they're plotted uh, over the time of the Christmas time. Of course, uh, Die Hard is during a Christmas party. But do you consider those movies to be Christmas movies? We know what regular Christmas, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Charlie Brown Christmas. But do these qualify as Christmas movies? So maybe some of you want to debate that back and forth as the live show continues uh, tonight. I I was actually watching, uh, I have Lethal Weapon in the disc uh, in right now, and I think I'm one of the few people that actually likes Lethal Weapon, at least the first one. The other, uh, I can watch the other Die Hard movies, I have a hard time watching the other Lethal Weapon movies. The first Lethal Weapon is such a great movie on so many levels. The, the other ones are kind of like, I think they were just money grabs for the actors. Whereas the other Die Hard movies actually, I think, are pretty good. But still, I think Lethal Weapon, the first one, is a better movie than the first Die Hard. And I love the first Die Hard. But I actually think that the Lethal Weapon movie is a better movie, uh, has, I think, a little more depth to it. Obviously, the action in both of them is spectacular. 
Lethal Weapon, the first one, just has a little more depth to it, I think. I wonder how everybody feels about that. That could, I know a lot of people who like both movies, but they usually just pick Die Hard. Oh, that's better. I think Lethal Weapons and I uh, are the better movie. And I will tell you, uh, I do have a funny story about uh, Lethal Weapon. I, here's how I originally saw Lethal Weapon. This is a true story. And I, and I don't know if my buddy Doug, longtime best friend, uh, Doug, will remember this. I'll have to ask him tonight after I'm done with the live show. Lethal Weapon came out when I was in 10th grade. So I would have been 16 years old. Uh, yeah, 16. 16 uh, was 16 when I went. I was actually 16 before I started 10th grade. So, of course, September, October, November, December, and then you go into 1987. It came out sometime in early 1987. So I was only 16 years old. Well, that's an R-rated movie. And I shouldn't have been able to get into it. But I will tell you, here's what was going on. This is, the, this is a true story. Uh, my, my buddy and Doug and I were out, hanging out 16. Uh, now, he's technically a year younger than I am, so he couldn't even drive yet. I was driving. And we were interested in a couple girls that we saw. And there was a local theater. It's still the building's there, there but it's not a theater anymore. Cinema 123. Lethal Weapon was playing at this theater. And we saw these girls go into the theater and they were somehow, even though they were also not technically old enough to go see an R-rated movie, somehow they got into that movie. And so we went up and got tickets and we were allowed to go in and see this movie too. Once again, even though... um, we're, we were technically not old enough to see an R-rated movie. This, all we had in our minds is we wanted to meet these girls. And there, there were like two or three or four of them or something. The funny part is we get into the theater and the movie had already kind of started. We missed like the previews and it already started. Of course, you can't see them in the theater. It's all dark. A lot of people in there. We get seats. And the movie was so good that before the movie was over, we even forgot about the girls. We were more interested in the movie than we were in the girls. And we just totally blew it off after that. That's what I remember about going to see Lethal Weapon way back in early 1987. I don't know if Doug would remember that or not. But uh, it's like, it's clear as day to me all these years later. So that's what I remember about going to see Lethal Weapon way back when, over 30 years ago. Um, Let's see what everybody's saying. Yes, yes, yes on the Christmas movies. Uh, And the greatest Christmas movie never made is The Night the Reindeer Died. I don't know that. Mark, only Christmas movie I watch without fail every year is A Christmas Story. Uh, Mark, I've probably watched that movie 20 times over the last month. I have it playing in the background when I'm doing work. Deborah Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a spectacular movie. I DVR'd that. Uh, Julie says, I still love Home Alone. It's okay. I've seen it. Don't really care if I see it again. It was fine. It maybe just doesn't, being that I don't have kids or anything, maybe it just doesn't translate well to me now at 52. 
Melissa says, I agree with your lethal weapon assessment is correct. So you think that's better than uh, Die Hard 2. Julie says, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. I don't know what that means, but it's funny. Uh, quadruple misdemeanor violators. Yes, we were. That was not the only things uh, that we were uh, things we were doing uh, back then. Uh, although, just we were, I would say myself and my friends were more mischievous than actually breaking any laws or anything. We just like hijinks and things like that. Uh, Betty says, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. The John McClane character has many of the same characteristics as George Bailey character in It's One, A Wonderful Life. I've seen that. Mrs. Uh, that was a reference to Scrooge. I have not seen that for a long time. Haley said, I was just watching Elf. It's a classic. I'm not a big Will Ferrell fan, but I do like Elf. And I love Ricky Bobby as well. Those are two very, very, very funny movies. A lot of the other stuff he did, I couldn't get into. And then when he was on Saturday Night Live, really couldn't get into that either, except for the cowbell skit. But Elf is uh, really funny. And to get that they got James Caan to play that part and be the straight man in that this uh, zany comedy is certainly something. I thought, although Will Ferrell's funny, I thought James Caan did a spectacular uh, job in that movie uh, as well. To, for him to even agree to do that movie and everything, spectacular. Okay. And then finally, Christmas music. I've been listening to a lot of Christmas music uh, in the car here, even when I've gone out to a couple Starbucks over the past week or late night cafe, doing work, putting things together. Um, On my headphones, I've been playing a lot of classic, like Andy Williams and Johnny Mathis and Nat King Cole and Elvis, like Christmas classics, all those put together. Listening to Sam Mannheim Steamroller. Um, of course, the uh, speaking of Charlie Brown, Vin, the Vincent Garaldi trio with the, all the the um, Charlie Brown music from it's a, um, a Christmas uh, Charlie Brown. So it's all good. It's all Prancers is a cute Christmas movie. Never saw it. Deborah says Jingle Bell Rock. Uh, every time I hear that. I think of uh, Lethal Weapon, Deborah. That's how um, that's how Lethal Weapon starts out with that song, and then finally the helicopter goes to that building uh, where that woman eventually jumps out. And if you don't know, the actress at the beginning of Lethal Weapon who jumps off that building is the same actress who played Kelly on Cheers, Woody's eventual wife. Remember when he does that? Song K-E-L-L-Y, Kelly, 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 K-E-L-L-Y. Any of you are old enough to remember that. The actress that plays Kelly, who is like this uh, spoiled, her parents are really rich. She was very spoiled, but she and Woody hook up. That is the same actress. Same actress. actress. I forget her name, but the same actress. All right, let's move on now that we're uh, 38 minutes into this live show. Let's, um, let's move on to, of course, some uh, more serious topics, a lot that I want to talk about. going to start first, but anybody who wants to keep talking about Die Hard, A Lethal Weapon, or any other great college me- uh, Christmas music or movies, feel free to list them in the, um, in the chat. 
I'm totally fine with that. If you want to have some conversations back and forth, I don't mind that at all. So moving on, let's talk about a few unfound items. I will start where I usually do. And I did put out a poll, even though the the complete saga is not done yet. I did post a poll in the discussion group. And right now, uh, 60% of the respondents think that Keith and Sandra were abducted by a stranger or strangers. Nobody thinks that they drove up uh, to the to the uh, Colonial Parkway uh, all by themselves. So, but still, the number one answer right now is that something happened. They're at the party, going home, and somehow a stranger or strangers abducted them and then staged the car up on the Colonial Parkway. I'm going to be very, very interested to see once I don't know exactly the poll question is going to be. We might even have more than one poll question this week in the discussion group. But I'm going to be interested to see if anybody changes their mind after part two plays. Because I'm telling you right now, part two is going to be a very different kind. I'll get into it later. But um, for once, I'm going to tell you what I think happened. Something, of course, you know that I never do on an episode. I'm going to do that for this one, and I'm going to show you how I came to that conclusion. And Karen says this is an outstanding episode so far. Thank you, Karen. Uh, part two is probably going to be about the same length, like two hours and 50 minutes. Uh, and the last 50 minutes uh, is going to be really dissecting the murders and then getting into the disappearance of how I come to my conclusion. I'm going to use a lot of um, unfound experience. Like I said, I'll get into that at the end of this slideshow. So right now, uh, the most popular answer is that they were abducted by a stranger or strangers. Uh, now, we've, of course, in the think tank, patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast, if you'd like to join the think tank, Really have not, uh, of course, this is just part one. So we only discussed items covered in part one. But unanimously, there were two unanimous answers that I would like to pass on to all of you. Unanimously, nobody thought that Keith and Sandra drove up to the Colonial Parkway. That was number one. So everybody in the, in the think tank believed or believes that the car was staged by somebody. Number two, the other unanimous answer was that Sandra absolutely knew that her ex-boyfriend Terry was going to be at the party. That was something that we discussed a little bit. And um going to get more into that in part two. Now, as for me, I did uh, I did write the Patreon blog this week. But strangely enough, I did not mention Keith and Sandra too much because I'm going to be what you're going to hear in part two this coming Friday is what would usually be reserved for the Patreon blog that you have to pay to read. But because we put so much work into this, I think that um, coming across uh, coming upon some new ideas, a new way to think about these disappearances and certainly new ways to think about the murders that I will talk about just a little bit. 
that I wanted to make this public so everybody can see that what we do in Unfound is just different than what everybody else does. In addition, um, I'm going to illustrate how so many, how and why law enforcement back in the 1980s got off the wrong, got off onto the wrong track regarding all of this is what I'm going to do. But what I did write about in the uh, Patreon blog this week is taking a look at different crime rates, looking at violent crime, looking at car thefts, and looking at terrorism, terroristic crimes in the United States over the last 30 years, and how so much of it has decreased. And why has that happened? Why has the car theft rate, if you can believe this in the United States, the car theft rate has dropped by two-thirds in 30 years. It's, in, it's an incredible number. Incredible change. Violent crime has dropped somewhere between one-third and 50%. Terroristic, das, t- terroristic acts, of course, they still happen. But when we start looking at things like hijackings and the bombing of planes... Maybe people don't realize this, but the bombing of planes used to be a thing in the United States going back like to the 1950s and 60s. And then we started with um, metal detectors, x-rays, and it stopped all of that. Then it became hijackings. Well, in the United States, we haven't had a hijacking of an airliner in the United States since September 11th. So how has this changed? Why has this changed? And moreover, why have all of these things, these rates of crimes dropped, but disappearances have stayed the same. The rate of disappearances in the population has stayed the same. Why is that? And so that was what this week's blog on Patreon is about. That sounds interesting to you. You should become a Patreon member. Uh, Whereas this coming weekend, of course, I'll be in Pennsylvania. I'll hopefully... New Year's or Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it done for Christmas Day, but I will try to do something. Eventually, I will write the blog for this upcoming uh, part two. And um, still not sure what I'm going to write because everything I usually write is going to be in the episode. I'll have to figure something out. But there you go. So moving on. Update episode number 13 is coming out next Friday, so December 30th. Really still not sure how many updates there are going to be. I really have not started looking into that just yet. Uh, At least a few things that I'll be able to talk about. Of course, the Panky Trial Part 2. Panky Trial number 2 will be part of that. Um, But other than that... Yeah, I really can't guarantee how long uh, this episode is going to be. As I stated maybe a month ago, it does seem that bodies being discovered connected to disappearances that we've covered on Unfound, it seems like it's slowed down a little bit. It seemed like for a while they were happening all the time. We had Andrea Bowman, Zoe Campos, Crystal Morrison, Esther Westenbarger, Chris Turner is identified. Christopher Hyde's identified, all of these things going on. And then it seems here in 2022, man, things have really slowed down. 
Don't have a lot of insight into that. Maybe I will talk a little bit about that in the update episode. But um, it just doesn't seem that there's been much going on in the way of discoveries of any remains in the last few months. That doesn't mean there aren't updates. There certainly could be other updates. It just seemed like 2022 was kind of a slow year. Maybe I will bounce back in 2023. Um, Moana is, I'm not going to read it here, but everybody, because I don't want to ruin it for everybody, but everybody in the chat uh, uh, can read Moana's statement. It's a perfectly fine statement. Uh, Moana voicing her idea of what happened to Keith and Sandra. That's totally fine, but I'm not going to read it uh, for now, but uh, we can keep it there. Uh, Sure. You don't have to touch that. Melissa, I can't stay right now. I really want to dig in here. I have my own opinion of how their disappearances went down. Well, Melissa, we will have a chance to talk about that next Monday. Or if you want to post something in the discussion group on Facebook. Or if you want to become a Patreon member, we can do that there. And the think tank, a lot of different places you can do that. But I would certainly, um, I think you got, of course, here part two. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to everybody. I'm going to actually, I've already recorded part of it. Uh, I'm going to probably record another small part of it after the live show tonight. And then complete the recording of it tomorrow. Because I have to have it done by Thursday because I fly out on Thursday. So have to get it done. Now, as far as moving into 2023... I think we're going to have a disappearance for the first uh, Friday of 2023. You know, this time of year is always very difficult. I've talked to several people. In fact, Emily, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. Emily has been talking to some people. But, you know, the holidays, it's kind of a very touchy time. This, This last, like, five weeks, six weeks of any year when you're looking to talk to people about disappearances, it, um, it's very touchy. You know, it always hurts for these people, but these times of the year, Thanksgiving, Christmas, families getting together is especially hard. So I can't make any guarantees right at the second that we will have a disappearance for the first Friday of January. We're going to uh, do our best. I uh, have a couple different ideas of what that disappearance might be. Certainly talked to a lot of spectacular people recently, but the closer you get to Christmas, the more difficult it gets. But if I don't do that, it very well may be for that first Friday of 2023, kind of going in the theme of the way we are finishing uh, 2022, is that I may play a recording of me speaking at one of the schools uh, from this past year. Uh, since I don't think a lot of people have, um, of course, the entire presentations, I've put parts of the presentations on our YouTube channel, but the full presentations have only been available to premium Patreon members. So I may make one of those presentations uh, available to everybody as a podcast for the first Friday of um, of 2023, because maybe some of you are wondering, what is Ed exactly doing 
when he goes and speaks at these schools. You may be seeing clips, but how do I put it all together? And so, um, so I got a couple different, I guess what we're saying is we got options uh, for that first Friday of 2023, but this is usually how far I think ahead on things like that, especially when I know we are around a, a, a very touchy time of the year. Uh, Deborah says, was the father sure the clothes were not in the car when he came up to the car? Uh, yes, uh, Deborah, he was. Yes, very, very 100% sure. And we're going to get into that in part two, Deborah. In fact, um, that is the first thing that is covered in the second halves of each interview and how that all happened. Charlene says, hi, everyone. Hopefully I'll get to stay tuned for the entire show. It's almost 3 a.m. here in Tullamore, Ireland, Ireland. So it might be time for some strong coffee and some inspired art play. Charlene, I agree. Moving on, uh, next, uh, next, when is it, Shree? Next Wednesday evening, I'm actually going to be um, having a Zoom meeting with a couple of my assistants, uh, Shree and Eric. And we're going to be talking about the state of the podcast and going through a lot of things that are going on with Unfound and some things that are good and some things that aren't so good. And we're going to have a discussion regarding all of that. I can already tell you that for 2023, there are the podcast itself is not going to change. Uh, is it Tuesday? Sheree, you better check that. I thought it was the 28th, which is a Wednesday. Sheree, if it's Tuesday, that works for me too, Sheree. But I know I sent you and Eric the Zoom link. Uh, if you could, while we are, uh, if I'm talking here, you can check that again. Tuesday's totally fine. But I thought it was Wednesday. Just might want to double check that, tree. But we're going to have an in-depth talk about a lot of things uh, that are going on with the podcast. Some things that are good, some things that are bad, some things that could be better. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And what can we do to improve all of it for 2023. So I think it means some things are going to be added. Some things are going to be deleted. And really uh, overall, I think it's just uh, one more way of me figuring out um, a better way for me to use my time, a more constructive way, more efficient time. And you know, everybody, uh, Every assistant has their little things to do. Of course, Emily, um, although she's been very busy um, moving forward in her career this year, she has still been reaching out to a lot of guests. But I have to tell you, I've kind of been doing most of that this year. I'm totally fine with that. And then Carrie, who appears in the live show once in a while, um, she's actually been working behind the scenes on one of the disappearances that Unfound covered this past year and doing great work there. So she's off doing that. And so it's um, Eric and Cherie who I'll be talking to uh, and, and going over some things. Going to have some very honest conversations about everything that Unfound is doing. Cherie uh, says, uh, okay, so Oracle, you're leaving. Have a nice night. Uh, thank you for joining in. Uh, Shree says, I thought it was the 27th. I printed the outline out today. 
Tuesday or Wednesday, I'll be there. Just uh, please check it out. Just want to make sure I'm not losing my mind. I thought it was Wednesday, but um, there you go. Julie says, winter solstice on the 21st. Thank you for letting us know, Julie. And then the final, uh, and uh, as far as what's going to go on with this meeting, I don't know how much of it I'll be able to pass on to a lot of you. Probably any determinations and changes that come from this meeting, whenever it's supposed to be next one, Tuesday or Wednesday, are probably things that are going to be phased in over time and that'll be one way one week and then maybe the next week it'll be something totally different. We'll just have to say. All I can tell you is the Friday episodes aren't changing. Uh, because I have to tell you that uh, the the podcast itself that comes out every Friday continues to be the the best thing that goes on here. And as long as that's the case, there's always a lot of possibilities for growth and finding new people, finding new audiences, and doing a lot of great things. The podcast itself continues to do great. Um, it's these other things that, you know, when you look at the YouTube channel, for example, and see 15,000 subscribers, well, why is it that the videos that are posted there at most get a, like a thousand or 1100 views? Why is that? It should be more. You'd think maybe not. We're going to talk about things like that. Uh, sure. Shree says 28th, you're right. I like it when I'm right, Shree. Uh, just so you know, it's, so it's next Wednesday. And the reason I was thinking about that tree is because I'm supposed to get together with my buddy Brad and we want to go to this wing place while I'm back, while I'm back in Pennsylvania. Well, the wing, this place has the special wing deal on Wednesdays. And so I told him, well, I got this meeting later that evening. And he says, well, it's all day. So we can go anytime during the day. And I said, oh, okay. So it's kind of how I was thinking it was the 28th Wednesday, Sheree. I was thinking about chicken wings, of course. So uh, moving on, uh, regarding uh, something, a couple things you're going to be seeing in 2023. I don't know when they will actually happen, but these are two uh, fairly big things that I've already put on my to-do list even before we have this meeting next week, is that I am going to uh, create a... Uh, on teachable.com, a program, a course on how to start a podcast. Now, I know there are some out there, and I know a lot of them are free right here on YouTube, but having watched some of them, they're not very good. Especially, uh, I get the feeling that the people who have made these really aren't hardcore podcasters. Of course, I am. This is all that I do. So I think that uh, I'm going to put that together. I'm going to put it on teachable.com. It's going to take a while to put it uh, all together because it's going to be fairly long. Big surprise there. Everything we do here is long. But right from the beginning, making the decision to start a podcast the whole way through marketing and monetizing and everything else and everything in between. And really... Like I said, I've looked at some that are, that are free and they're just not very good. They are not, none of them are anything that I would ever follow if I was, now that I know what I know about podcasting, they're just, 
they're a little too general. They make, there's some, a lot of mistakes in there. Whereas what I'm going to create is a really, really, really step-by-step guide to create a podcast. And so anybody that's interested in it can go to teachable.com and watch this course for a fee. And I will be using examples from Unfound, my own workflow to put that together. So I'm going to probably be filming, for example, me um, filming myself interviewing people. How do you interview people? What do you do? How do you record it? Or how do you write a script that you're going to record? All those things, just going to be these little videos that eventually I'm going to put into one total course. So uh, I'm going to be working on that. Don't know when it's going to come out. Hopefully I can get it done early in 2023. Something else though that I'm going to create, I'm going to do that first because that's going to give me like the test run for all of this. Uh, But I've actually had a few people ask me why I haven't, over the course of 2022, I've actually had some people ask me why I haven't done this yet. And that is, why have I not created a disappearance course? How do you go about looking at disappearances, analyzing them? What are the mistakes that people make? What are the mistakes the law enforcement make? You could really, that might be able to help a lot of people. So... I'm in the very early stages of putting something like that together too. Once again, on teachable.com. But I think for that, it's going to be differing levels because there are different types of people who, uh, there are people that are very engaged. Of course, family members create a course specifically for them because they have a specific point of view. And then for people just like all of you, the public, if you'd like to get more interested in disappearances and researching them and understanding them, well, you don't have to figure it out on your own. Here's a two-hour course on what I've learned over the last six years after 275 disappearances. I'm also going to create one for law enforcement, of course. So there'll probably be three different courses. Some of the parts will probably be the same, but a lot of the parts are going to be different because we have to look at it from different points of view. We have to look at it from a family point of view. We have to look at it from a public point of view. We have to look at it from a law enforcement point of view. So that's going to take some time, but I had enough people bring this up to me during the course of 2022 that I think it's just something I'm going to have to consider. And as you would guess, there's nothing like this out there anywhere because You know, a lot of different podcasts and TV shows and YouTube channels cover disappearances. But I don't know of anybody else who really studies them. I think, I'm not here to brag, but I think I'm the only person who does that and keeps stats and and remembers all these facts and figures and everything else. And that has to be useful to somebody somewhere. Not just in doing the podcast, but somebody who are in constructive areas. And I think that this is something that's uh, worthy to be paid for. And this is why 
the this two-part episode regarding the Colonial Parkway disappearance is so important because you're going to hear kind of in in the second half of or not the second half but the last third of this part two this coming Friday you're going to hear me get into this more than you've ever heard me get into anything before ever now some of you who are on the, who are um, who are Patreon members who have read the blog. Some of this is going to be very familiar to you, but a lot of it isn't because I've maybe kind of been working on some ideas. And so this will be kind of like a coming out party or something, whatever you want to call it, for showing how disappearances um, should be analyzed and why everybody to this point, 34 years later, have looked at these disappearances wrongly. And I'm going to use all the experience that we have from Unfound, all of its cases, to apply it to Keith and Sandra's disappearances. And that's something that nobody's doing. And so then I will take that into the teachable course in 2023. It'll all be kind of put together. Deborah says, my opinion, the Colonial Parkway murders, you were absolutely exceptional question, et cetera. I was mesmerized and giving 100% of my attention is hard for me. Well, I hope uh, you're certainly going to be engaged for part two, Deborah. It was really, that was just the um, appetizer, part one. Uh, the entree and dessert is part two. All right, let's move on to some national news. And where I'm going to start is uh, a follow-up with Robert Hoagland, this guy who went missing some years ago in Connecticut. And then he was discovered dead in New York, and he had been living um, under an assumed name, Richard King. So I'm going to read some to you. And because if you'll remember last week, I put out there that I hope we find out how he was able to do this. How was he able to move not that far away, seemingly provide for himself? living somewhere, eating, sleeping, taking care of himself, and nobody realized it. Well, now we have some of those answers. And I think that this will help us looking back at unfound disappearances where we think people really did walk off and start new lives. And then it's certainly going to help us in the future. So let me read this, some of it anyway, not all of it. Something was wrong with David's roommate. It was Monday morning, December 5th, and David was about to leave for work. He hadn't laid eyes on Richard King, his friend of almost a decade since Friday. Normally, Rich was out of the house. They shared in this rural wedge of Sullivan County by the time David left his job for his job at the high, local high school. But when he saw his roommate's car in the garage, David's heart sank. That was very unusual, said the 46-year-old music teacher, who asked to be identified by only his first name. His anxiety had, grown, had been growing all weekend. On Friday, Rich, a real estate appraiser, had returned home after David had gone to bed early to rest up for a music gig in New York City. Because Rich often worked on Saturdays, David had been surprised to see his car in the garage that morning when he left to drive into the city. <coughs> Later, David watched Rich's Friday night return home on security cam footage. His roommate had been holding his back as he entered the house, apparently in some kind of physical distress. The two had lived together for more than nine years, an initial stopgap arrangement that had strengthened into a friendship. 
I thought of him as a brother, David said. So it was unusual that Rich hadn't come out of his room for their routine of Sunday dinner. And it was even more odd when he didn't leave for work on Monday. Increasingly panicked at work, David sent a volley of texts and calls to his roommate. uh, roommate. All went unreturned. A friend stopped by the house at David's request. No one answered the front door. David sped home and finally opened Rich's bedroom door where he found him lying in bed. Eye mask on, hands crossed over his chest, not breathing. Called 911. Rich was already dead. There was no signs of foul play. But in looking around his stuff, they uh, ended up finding mail and paperwork related to a guy named Robert Hoagland. David told detectives Rich had mentioned to him the previous week that he was going to receive some mail with a different name on it. He offered no explanation. And David didn't want to pry. But now he typed the name Robert Hoagland into Google and discovered that someone by that name had vanished from Newtown, Connecticut, almost a decade ago. And he was the spitting image of the dead man in the bed. Police said the real estate appraiser known to friends as Hoagie was last seen on July 28th at a gas station. This goes now through through. His, the, the facts of his disappearance. I'm going to skip over all uh, of that. Um, it goes through, it also talks about the problems that Robert's son was having, the laptop stories. So this then moves up to right after. So we'll now move up to this part of the story. So in 2013, David had put an ad on Craigslist seeking a roommate. His marriage, marriage had just ended in a far more conventional fashion than Robert Hoagland's. Richard King responded. He said he was also recently separated from his wife and new to the area. David had moved to Rock Hill the previous year to be closer to his teaching job. King had no identification, which troubled David at first. I asked him, and he said they had left it behind. He said he left everything behind. King was already working for Empire Inspections and Appraisals, a small firm that appraises homes in the Hudson Valley and Catskills. Though no one by that name of Richard King or Richard Hoagland is licensed as a real, residential real estate appraiser in New York. I'm going to come back to this. David was able to verify that Rich was working as a contractor for Empire, which his team included another individual David knew personally. That person also vouched for King. One of King's co-workers at Empire also spoke fondly of him to a reporter recently. David said a man who worked with King named Adam Jurek came by his house shortly after King's death to drop off some of his late co-worker's possessions. Jurek, who is listed as Empire's owner, did not respond to messages the Times Union left in person with his staff this week. He also did not respond to messages through a business phone number. King had few possessions with him when he moved in with David, clothing, some accessories, and a small bed. He moved into what had been a spare room in the rented house. The arrangement violated the terms of David's lease. Come back to this which had been signed with his wife and barred subleasing. That meant King didn't have to show their landlord ID or submit to a credit check. King used a car that had been loaned to him by his workplace, David said. A spokesman for the Department of Vehicles said it had no record of issuing an identity document to a Richard King born in the same month and year year as Robert Hoagland. And I kind of talked about this last week when I looked him up on some of the databases I used, friend found. There were no Richard Kings in, in Rock Hill, New York. Now we're finding out why. 
Um, when David had placed the ad on Red Craigslist, he was starting out in his career and needed help with the rent, he said. But as he achieved more success as a musician and more seniority at the high school, he asked King to just chip in the utilities. Rich always paid in cash. Okay, I think that's really all I need to go through uh, for this a particular story. But just to say that this Richard King, Robert Hoagland, very friendly guy. Everybody thought well of him, but he just didn't like to talk about his past. Of course, he lied about it. And, but he was also nebulous at the same time. So what can we learn from this? Let me just get in here. Uh, Deborah says, well, I can't wait for part two. James, happy holidays, Ed, and all you can all in here tonight. You too, James. Gordon says, damn crazy. True. Um, here's what we can learn from this. And like I said, it's a huge story. There's several links out to it. Maybe some of you have gone and read a bunch of different stories. But here's what I think we can learn now that we know that Robert Hoagland successfully left his life before nine years. And it's safe to say that if he had not died of what it seems to be natural causes, was it a stroke, a heart attack, uh, an aneurysm, he have cancer. And it does seem that the reason that he got this paperwork, it does seem, of course, you have to remember this. He can't go see a doctor. This is, you know, this is something, once again, we need to think about these things. When we start thinking about people leaving their lives to start new lives, we have to start thinking about our own lives and everything that we do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis that are important. And one of those things is going to the doctor. What happens when you get sick? Now, I will say, having been to the dentist so many times over the past year, you can probably go to a dentist and not have too many problems. Dentists will take cash um, or something, but you go to an actual physician, that's going to be a little different. I know dentists are doctors too. I'm not an anti-dentite, but it's just different. And this is where it seems Robert Hoagland finally figured out after nine years, this is something that, that could not be avoided. It sounds to me like he did need medical care, but he couldn't go get medical care because as soon as he went to a, a an emergency room or something like that, a lot of people would start getting fishy, especially if he needed surgery and started needing, needing to fill out paperwork, you know, in case anything goes wrong and everything else. He had to know that at that point, the scheme that he, that he came up with would be blown. And it is believed, though, at the time of his death, that the reason he got this paperwork is because he was trying to figure out a way to go to a doctor without being discovered his real identity. That is, that kind of comes out in the story. And I've read this in other stories that I've read uh, since last Monday. And what's everybody saying here? Um, Mark says, only two things you need to remember. Don't tell anyone where you're going. And when you get there, and don't tell anybody where you've been. Spleen says he tried to leave once before. That's true. I guess that he regretted leaving that time because his kids were little. Once they, that's very true too. Spleen, 
You could go to a free clinic, Deborah, but uh, once you start needing like surgery, which it very well may be, uh, I'm not a medical professional. Maybe some of you are. What do you start thinking when you see a guy holding his back and then he dies? Uh, is that is that signs of a heart attack? I, I suppose it could be or something. But yes, that was a sign for a reference, uh, Lisa. Very nicely done. Hello, fairy. But I think what we're learning from all of this is that it takes a village for some, and all the other people, of course, being, you know, being involved unwittingly, uh, unknowingly. But we now can see just reading, not even that whole article, but just part of it, why Richard King, Robert Hoagland was able to change his name to Richard King and disappear for nine years. Why? Because everybody around him was cutting corners. And they weren't doing it for him. They were doing it for themselves for whatever reason. This this David guy, he needed a roommate so badly that it didn't matter to him that Richard King didn't have an ID. He needed a roommate so badly it didn't matter that he wasn't supposed to sublet or bring in a roommate. He wasn't allowed to do that. He did it anyway. It didn't matter that this company that Richard King was working for usually needed licensed people. He didn't have a license because he couldn't go get a license because he didn't have an ID. This company looked the other way. And this is something that I think I've kind of maybe suspected for a while. I don't know if I've played, you know, I don't know if the, all the ideas finally came together or anything, but just reading over the past week, an article such as this one, it tells us a lot that people for them to, if even one of these people had done things the right way, the legal way, the ethical way, the, he does not stay missing for nine years. That's what I'm saying. Now, the question is, what would have happened if one of these people would have found him out? Might have, might have gone missing again. Very possible. Might have just gone somewhere else. But he was driving somebody else's car. Remember, we brought that up last week. What was he doing for a car? He had a work car. Didn't have a valid driver's license. Well, I guess he did his Robert Hoagland, I guess but didn't have a driver's license for Richard King. That's how he was able to stay off databases. He was paying for things in cash. That's how he was able to stay off databases. So what this means is we start entertaining this idea, and I, I had a short list of people that we might think about, unfound disappearances, where it may very well may be that these people left their lives for them to have done that, they would have needed people like people who were mentioned in this article. People who didn't know that the person is missing and is actually a new identity, but they're going about things in a way that allows somebody to take advantage of them to conceal the person's real identity. And if any of these people, like I said, if any of these people at doing, doing, doing these things to the letter of the law, what is required in the state of New York, Robert Hoagland would not have done this. Did he get lucky? It seems so. 
How did he just happen to run into these people? Maybe there's a lot of people cutting corners. I guess there is. Uh, but this certainly helps. I guess what I'm saying, again, is if somebody's going to leave his or her life, they're going to need a lot of help from a lot of people who are not involved in the disappearance at all. And this is what makes people disappearing like this so difficult. It's not something, there's no way that Robert Hoagland, when he decided to disappear, that he knew he would run into these people. He just happened to do that. And, um, you know, someone gave him a car. Someone allowed him to do a job without a license. He was renting, always paying cash. He really wasn't supposed to be renting there anyway, according to the rules of the lease. But he was allowed to do it. So, yes, starting a new life can be done. It can be done. But you're going to need a lot of people who aren't doing things the right way for it to continue. Um, Now, the big question is he did not move that far away from where he originally lived. Why is it that these people didn't know who he was? And this is why, even though families do it, can't stop them from doing it. But when it comes to putting flyers up and, and things like that, I think we can now see with Robert Hoagland's disappearance why it's rarely successful. Robert Hoagland, of course, we did not cover his disappearance on Unfound, but he was on Disappeared. I think there have been some YouTube shows about him. Certainly there have been people, his, his picture is out everywhere. And here he was living right in the center of this community, not out in the middle of nowhere. He was going to real, do real estate appraisals, running into a bunch of different people, all walks of life, and not one of them realized that he was Robert Hoagland. This is the reason that I've stated for a long time when people claim, well, I ran into this missing, we heard a lot of stories over the last six years. Well, I was here and I ran into a missing person. I swear it was the missing person. And now you see, you can understand why I doubt it. These people were seeing this guy every day. He had not really moved that far away. His face was all over the internet, on the TV, a lot of news, disappeared and everything, and still people didn't realize that it was him. So you tell me then how people years later are supposed to say, 10 years after disappearance, you know what, I think I saw John Smith, that missing person from 10 years ago. This is why I doubt it. This is also why, to bring it to a specific unfound disappearance, this is exactly why I doubted that sighting of Cameron Remmer uh, in San Francisco. As soon as it came out, of course, before I even looked at the picture, I said, that's not him. And here we are two and a half years later. Those people who swore up and down and sideways, oh, it's Cameron, it's Cameron. I actually got into an argument with one of them over email at the time. Guess who's right? Me. Robert Hoagland's disappearance is the reason that I'm right. It's just not how the human mind works. And this is also why, at least for interviews, 
that I do. Yeah, I put pictures up of the missing people, but you'll notice that in the interviews I do with guests, families or whoever's on as the guest, we don't talk a lot about descriptions. You notice that? We don't talk about height. We don't talk about weight. We don't talk about what the people are wearing or their shoes or anything else. It's just unhelpful. It doesn't, I know this is crazy. It doesn't matter. And Robert Hoagland's disappearance is a perfect example of why. He wasn't hiding. He was not living out in a national forest, uh, living off the land. He was living in a place with air conditioning and heat. He had a company car. He was doing a real job, and people were just looking right past him. And that certainly helped him. I mean, I, I can't even imagine the nerves that he would have, uh, the, the kind of nervousness that he would have had showing up at these places, wondering if somebody was going to uh, recognize him. He had to have been beside himself when the Disappeared episode came out. Still, he continued to do his job, and nobody recognized him. And that's why I've, that, that's why I've said we are all in our own little worlds. We are. We have, we have, we're important people. We have things to do. We've got places to be. And it's amazing how we don't recognize people, even though today that woman did think that I was George Lynch. But really, we're just in our own little worlds going about our business. We're all in our own reality shows, uh, and we're important. So what's everybody saying uh, about this? Um, Spleen says, don't criminals do it all the time? You hear all these cases where people have tons of aliases and move around. You do, but uh, I don't know when you say criminals. I don't know how many criminals are real estate appraisers, though, Spleen. Certainly people can live off the grid. Certainly people um, who are drug dealers and such don't have proper paperwork or anything. But certainly Robert Hoagland was not living that kind of life. Uh, Deborah says, what did he do that he wanted to leave us a former life? Uh, I, I don't know if we'll ever know, Deborah. He's dead now. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll ever know that. It does seem like his kids had same things going on. His wife was coming back from a trip and it very well may be, I can't live under the same roof with this woman for another day in my life. It was really too nice while she was gone. So I'm out of here. Could have been. He certainly, it was not certainly some sort of amnesia. He remembered who he was. He knew who he was. Uh, Kathy says he also had to have been paid under the table by Empire. Surely, Kathy, you being the IRS person or fictitious social security number, maybe that'll come out. Kathy, Deborah, yeah, I would not have worked for nine years. Deborah, sure, deceased persons or, or child. Deborah, I'm a, yes, Deborah, she is a retired IRS employee. Um, not sure. Uh, probably depends on the years. Also, 70s and 80s are a lot easier. Kathy, a tax return has to have a valid social security number. People cutting corners. People needing employees and, and things. So it helped that he a lot of people to help him, even though they didn't realize that he was a missing person. So there we have it. That is how you go and get a new life. You need a lot of help. And so this is why when we start thinking about disappearances where we think this happened, 
there is no way that somebody could plan this out, everything to a T. This, these people would have to have help from others, probably people who didn't even realize they were helping. You cannot plan this all out and make it just perfect. Then I'm going to do this. And everybody's just going to continue to do everything ethically, morally, legally, and I'm going to get away with it. We now know you're going to have to run into people when it comes to jobs and housing and things that are cutting corners. All right, moving on. I want to talk about this. And this actually has its own uh, Wikipedia page. The son of a murdered billionaire, sons of billionaires, Barry and Honey Sherman, has increased the reward for information that can help authorities find and arrest his parents' murderer to 35 million Canadian dollars. I have no idea. Somebody's going to have to do the conversion on that. I don't know how much that is in American dollars. But closure will not be possible until those responsible for this evil act are brought to justice, Jonathan Sherman told CBC Toronto, or Toronto, when he announced the increased reward. The immeasurable pain is felt every day when I realize that my own two children will never have the privilege of meeting my parents, who made their lives possible for me and my husband, he continued. My parents deserved to enjoy the fruits of their labor and spend their twilight years as any grandparent should with their family. I continue to miss my parents more than I can describe, and I'm forever haunted by what happened to them. Police found the Shermans dead in their North York, Ontario, or Toronto mansion. I've been through New York, North York, Toronto back in the day. On December 15th, 2017, so just over five years ago, the couple were found with belts around their necks and tied to the railings of their pool. Barry Sherman, 75, had founded the generic drug giant Apotex. The Shermans had an estimated wealth between $5 billion and $10 billion. Once again, I think that would be in Canadian money like it matters. Investigators initially believed the deaths resulted from a murder-suicide, but later determined that they were the victims of a targeted double homicide, according to The Guardian. The most recent lead arose last year when investigators asked for help identifying a walking person on the sidewalk they deemed highly suspicious. Despite the apparent breakthrough, police have failed to identify the man, but they remain confident he is linked to the murders. The person stands between five foot six inches and five foot nine inches tall, but other traits remain unknown. The surviving family members had originally offered a $10 million reward for information leading to the murder's capture, but five years later, they have grown more desperate for answers. The Toronto police remain committed to resolving this case and bringing closure to the couple's friends and family. Jonathan Sherman asked anyone with relevant information to contact the Toronto police at shermantips at torontopolice.on.ca so they can bring the case to a close. So that was a recent article written about this. I will now read part from the Wikipedia page um, that I think has existed for some time. Um, I'm just going to start here right in the middle of it. I urge you all, if you're interested in reading this, just go to the Wikipedia page and read everything you can read about their lives and everything leading up to that day. The next morning, December 15th, neither Barry nor Honey were expected to be at home in the morning. The cleaning staff had already let themselves in with a recently installed lockbox when a pair of real estate agents arrived around mid-morning with a couple interested in the property. 
After showing them around the main story, the agents took the couples downstairs to the lap pool and hot tub. There they discovered Barry and Honey's bodies on the floor next to the pool. Both of their necks were tied with leather belts to a metal railing slightly over a meter high, so that's like 40 inches, around the pool. Barry was seated, his legs crossed, on the pool deck. Honey was on her side with a bruise on her face. Coats were pulled down over their shoulders, restraining their arms. They were facing away from the water and fully clothed. On the second anniversary of the case, the Toronto Star reported that the positions the bodies were found in neatly matched those of two 1970s-era junk sculptures of human figures posed sitting on speakers in the basement of that same house. Barry's right leg was crossed over his left, just like one. However, Honey's legs were not in front of her as those on the corresponding uh, sculpture had been. The star also reported that Honey's cell phone was found in a bathroom that, according to friends, she never used, suggesting she might have gone there in an attempt to summon help, but was overpowered in the process. Similarly, Barry's gloves, as well as paperwork related to an inspection of the house, were left on the floor just outside the garage door on the way to the basement pool. A window had been left open to allow a recently painted room to air out, and a basement door was unlocked as apparently the Shermans frequently left it. Someone who may have known this, as well as the interior layout of the house, may have been able to escape through a neighboring backyard after the crime police said. Now, you should know some things that I didn't read here. A lot of different theories regarding their murders. Um, Seems that uh, Barry Sherman had been in some, uh, had some business dealings that went sour, He had recently won a judgment, but it sounded uh, very uh, contentious. There was also um, the Shermans were Jewish, and uh, there was a belief. There's also a belief that this could have been uh, anti-Semitic related, possibly. Uh, Also recently, even though they were worth a lot of money, the Shermans had requested that one of their sons gives some of the money they sent to him back for some reason that is still unclear, even though it seemed like they had plenty of money. They wanted some of this money they'd given to their son for a business that he was running. They wanted it back. A variety of things. Of course, when you're rich like that, of course, there's going to be a, of course, a lot of different uh, possibilities, uh, a lot of different business dealings. Uh, rich people, billionaires are probably being sued, sued all the time, especially if you're still running a business, you're still responsible for it, especially like they were in the medical field and who knows what was going on there. But I think what really sticks out is when the police originally arrived on the scene, they thought it was two suicides or a murder suicide. So uh, this, I guess is how police, once again, uh, get things wrong. And uh, Deborah's Deborah's saying, wow. Uh, Gordon's saying, yikes, I know. Uh, Ferry's saying, and a realtor showed the house. Yeah, I bet those people didn't buy that house, Ferry. I'm sure that sale went downhill very, very quickly. But here's something to understand. I, I wanted to read this. I do not, I've known about these murders for a few years now. In fact, I would even go to say I remember when this happened five years ago, but I don't think I've ever talked about it on a live show. 
I don't think. Given though that the reason the story is even out now is because the reward money has been up. Here's what I think I know. Raising the reward money is not going to solve this. They could really raise this to a billion dollars. It's not going to solve this. Not to be negative. And if one of their family members catches wind of me talking about this, I'm not trying to put any of you down or anything, but you know, what's if $10 million not, is, is not going to do it, what's, what's 15 or 20 or 25 or 30, $10 million. If somebody knows something, $10 million, I don't care if it's Canadian money, Australian money, British money, American money, or if it's in yen or anything else, rubies, uh, if people know something with, with that amount of money out there, they're going to come forward. But we know with so many disappearances that have rewards that we've talked about on found, rewards don't work. Not for murdered billionaires and not for the disappearances of average people. They just don't work. Now, uh, then, um, Ferry says, one with his sons and one with his cousin. Yeah. J7 says extortion tempt gone wrong. Um, it could be J7, but here's, I think, something we need to think about. Whoever, was, whoever killed them was in this house and they were dead. And it doesn't sound like anything was stolen. Doesn't sound like it. Nothing that I've ever read. Maybe things were stolen and the police are holding those things back. Possible. Maybe there was a secret stash of cash or something, but you're in a billionaire's house and the billionaire and his wife is dead. That would be the perfect time to at least steal something of value. And that has just not come up in any of the stories that I've seen. So it may be an extortion attempt. Uh, gone wrong certainly possible but then i have to start wondering well once they're dead if you're trying to extort them for money why not take something for your troubles so this was not a robbery this does uh seem like something that is much more personal but when you're a billionaire that could be in a lot of different things it could be personal due to business it could be personal due to there was something that I had read here that with this house, they had um, gotten around some of the, the laws regarding building in that area. And maybe some people were neighbors were ticked off about that. We have their ethnicity, which we know there's a lot of hate for Jews out there. So even when you say, well, it was personal, that could even take a lot of different forms. And, in addition, we can't look past like something that happened recently with um, former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and her husband, where they're just minding themselves at home. And this guy, this crazy guy, you know, I think they were just trying to help him or whatever. They let him into his house. And before you know it, he's taking a, you know, he's taking a hammer or whatever it was up against Nancy Pelosi's husband. He's lucky he wasn't killed. So could this have been what happened here? The Shermans had somebody outside look like the guy needed help. They let him inside. And before they know it, they're all tied up and dead. We can't look 
Um, we can't look past that. Now, why did the police get this wrong? I think, you know, I wasn't there. Easy for me to talk. I've never come across uh, a, a murdered body or anything, but probably it's just the lack of understanding and a lack of imagination. Um, there are a lot of couples involved in murder suicides out there. In addition, when we think about people being murdered, we don't automatically think of people who are billionaires. Do billionaires get murdered? They do. But that's a lot rarer than uh, your person making an average wage gets murdered or people making way lower than an average wage are murdered. Why? Billionaires live behind walls and, and secure houses and a lot of different things. Everybody else, we're much more about among the public. So that probably uh, had something to do with it uh, as well, that you just don't think you're going to run across two billionaires who are murdered. But it seems uh, this is what happened. Um, uh, Ferry, they think the sun did it. It's, uh, it's not clear from this article. Uh, I'm not saying that's a crazy thought. Ferry very well could be. Uh, but this article and then on the Wikipedia page, seems there's a few different possibilities, Ferry. Uh, Canada is no different than the United States. Most of the time when people end up dead, it's by somebody they know. So you can't rule out a son or somebody, but I'm guessing these billionaires knew a lot of people. And it does seem that they had maybe ticked off a few of them in 2017. Deborah says, the people who know you best, family, yeah. Yep. And we have to remember this is Canada. So uh, they do not, their murder rate and violent crime rate is nowhere near what the United States is. We also have to remember that in Canada, although it is legal to uh, own certain guns in Canada, some guns that you might be surprised the Canadians are allowed to own, but handguns are greatly restricted. And that very well may be the reason that these two were killed this way. It very well may be if in the United States, if somebody wanted to kill a couple, uh, a couple billionaires, that they'd show up at that person's house and just shoot them. Whereas a lot of people are limited and guns, guns are a lot harder to get. Canada has a black market for guns just like any country does, but something to think about. So I wanted to pass that along to you. I had not, didn't know if you've ever heard about their murders. It's a little, of course, bizarre given that they are billionaires, given that people originally did think that it was a murder-suicide, and now it's been changed to a murder. Very unique uh, case here. So I wanted to uh, talk about that. So I now want to move on to this. This is kind of another... A uh, bizarre story that you don't hear every day. And this comes to us from my former home state of Nevada. The mayor of Reno, Nevada, is suing a private investigator and his company, allegedly that the private investigator installed a tracking device on her car. And no, it was not Phil Klein. Mayor Hillary Sheeve. S-C-H-I-E-V-E, I think that's how you pronounce it, or Sheevee, 
Uh, if it's wrong, I apologize. Claims in a lawsuit that private investigator David McNeely and Five Alpha Industries, that's the name of the company, Five Alpha Industries, slipped onto her property on behalf of an unidentified third party to install a GPS device on her personal vehicle without her consent. The tracking and surveillance of Shivi caused her, as it would cause any reasonable person, significant fear and distress, according to the complaint, which was filed in Washoe County's 2nd Judicial District Court. Shivi learned about the tracking device after a mechanic noticed it while he was working on her car. After she brought the device to police in Sparks, Nevada, they determined McNeely had purchased it because I think you have to register these things or something like that. Shivi, who was one, who was reelected to a third term as Reno's mayor last month and has held the office since 2014, said she learned about the device two weeks before the vote, according to the Nevada Independent, which first reported on the lawsuit. I'm publicly announcing this now and did not want to make, did not make any public statements at the time when it was discovered to make clear that this is about one thing and one thing only. It is not okay to stalk people, Shivi said. The mayor is seeking restitution for invasion of privacy, trespassing, civil conspiracy, negligence, and attorney's costs, as well as the identity of the client, according to the complaint. So this happened a couple of weeks ago, and this story that I'm reading here is fairly recently, and still we don't know publicly who wanted her tracked. And of course, being that we don't know who was the client, we don't know the reason that this person would have wanted to do this. The complaint also claims without any evidence that the company has installed similar tracking devices on other vehicles of multiple other prominent community members. Now, what this sounds like to me, this has to have something to do with politics, right? Uh, you know, before I get to that last little, that sentence, you're thinking, well, maybe it was done by, you know, I think she's married, I think. But does her husband think that, that she was cheating on him? This happens. That's one of the main reasons private investigators are hired. Or was this, did, you know, did somebody suspect that she was doing something illegal as mayor something like that. And that's why the tracking device was put on, on, on the car. But now this, this last sentence, the complaint also claims without any evidence that the company has installed similar tracking devices on other vehicles of multiple, multiple other prominent communities, I guess, without any evidence that I guess this is up for speculation. But if that is true, then this is surely political. Now I read a little bit about, uh, her political stances. We don't do politics here, but I would say uh, she definitely leans uh, to a more liberal uh, side uh, of the aisle, um, more to the Democrat Party and such. And this is interesting to me because having lived in Nevada, that really when it comes to the, the main political parties in the United States, the way you look at Nevada is that the southern Nevada where I live, which is Clark County where Las Vegas and Henderson are, um, 
that is a Democrat's stronghold. They win all the elections. It's very what we would call blue. The rest of Nevada is very red, very Republican or conservative, and that's the way they usually vote. And anytime you look at the state of Nevada, when it comes down to a, you know, like a presidential election or a statewide election, like governor or senator, it's these two areas battling against each other. So Southern Nevada versus everybody else. And so it does catch my attention that she is a mayor of Reno, which is technically a Republican or red area of Nevada, but she is like the opposite. So that certainly catches my attention. That could be that somebody was looking to dig dirt up on her or on other people and hoping to use it in some sort of uh, political campaign. Now, what we don't know is how long that tracking device was on there. We know when it was discovered. Um, we don't know uh, how long it had been on there. Of course, we don't even know the reason it was put there and who the client was. But dare I say it, this is also one of those reasons that when it comes to private investigators uh, for disappearances, this is why I tell my guests to stay away from them. Because this is the kind of stuff they do. Uh, Are we to really think that, you know, one week they're putting uh, a tracking device on a mayor's car going on, it's seemingly onto private property to do it, which is illegal. That's trespassing. And then you expect them, families kind of, you know, expect them to do good missing persons investigations. The two just don't go together. And this is why I counsel all of my guests, stay away from them. I don't care if they're working for free. Stay away from them. Um, I have it here. Opponent wanted dirt, which she's cheating on a significant other. Uh, She has had some controversies that seem to get her in trouble. One was that she put a... um, uh, sometime, I don't know if it was this year or last year, whenever she did it, but she replaced the American flag at, at, at the residence or, or the Capitol in Reno or the, the mayor's office or whatever it is. She replaced the American flag there with a lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgendered flag. Uh, that seemed to tick off a lot of people. And then also from a once again, if we're going to look at this from a political point of view, that she tried to get something passed in the state legislature that would have given her more power as the mayor of Reno. And you have to remember, she's been the mayor of Reno since 2014, so she's just not some newcomer. So that seemed to get uh, a lot of attention as well. A lot of people didn't like that, but it did not go through. And there's something you have to understand, and I learned this, once again, the only reason I learned, know this is because I lived there for 13 and a half years, that the mayors of the cities in uh, Nevada don't have a lot of power. Uh, we'll go back to like when I lived there, um, it was Mayor Oscar Goodman for most of the time that I lived there. There was um, Jan Jones was the mayor when I first moved there. 
and then Oscar Goodman took over. Well, he was a mob attorney back in the 1980s. In fact, he's in the movie Casino playing himself. And I, and then his wife became mayor. I don't know if she's still mayor, but then she was mayor after he was done. But the mayor position in the major cities like Las Vegas, Reno, Carson City, Henderson, they're mainly just ceremonial positions. They're more about the marketing of the city more than um, passing any laws or anything. Uh, the power of the cities or the county is in the city council or the county council. The mayor, like I said, the mayor does commercials and he goes to conventions and he pitches Nevada, Las Vegas or whatever city to tourists and to businesses and things like that. That's basically what Oscar Goodman did as mayor. That's what I remember of him when I was there. Very non-political. Doesn't, when you run for mayor of Las Vegas, it's really not about whether you're pro-life or pro-choice or big taxes, a lot of taxes, low taxes, or anything like that. Of course, you're always pro-gambling. But it's really just a ceremonial position. But it sounds to me like this woman wanted to change that in Reno, and she was rebuffed. Could that have something to do with the reason people were uh, wanted to track her? Could be. Do I think we'll eventually know who did this? Uh, we can only hope. Hopefully, we will find out. So I wanted to talk about that. Um, what time? we got about nine minutes left. I do have – I need to read this very sad story. Uh, very quickly, two police officers murdered. And this just shows you how things can go badly so quickly. And I did look this woman up, and I'll tell you about her in a second. Amy Anderson, the Mississippi veterinarian who shot and killed two police officers, told the officers that she believed she was being followed by a white pickup truck prior to the violence. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation said the 43-year-old mom of three checked into the Motel 6 in Bay St. Louis with her eight-year-old daughter at about 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday. What's a veterinarian doing with a daughter to most till 6 at 2.30 in the morning? Just over an hour later, she asked the front desk clerk to call 911 for help. Minutes later, the police officer, uh, Brendan Astorf and Sergeant Stephen Robin, arrived on the scene and spoke to her for about 40 minutes. It wasn't like they showed up and he, she just shot them. They actually had a long conversation with her for 40 minutes. During that time, she advised the officers that she was in fear for her life and that she was being followed by a white pickup truck. The interactions with Anderson and her minor child occurred both inside and outside of their hotel room, during which time the officers took statements, gathered information, and investigated allegations made by Anderson. At some point, Child Protective Services was contacted due to concerns for the safety of the minor child. Anderson then told officers that she and her daughter planned to leave the motel and started to load up her vehicle. Investigators said Anderson was seated in the driver's seat when she shot Robin, who was standing outside of the vehicle. He died at the scene. A storf, uh, a storf then exchanged shots with Anderson. Investigators said Anderson was hit in the chest and died at the scene. A storf was taken to Memorial Hospital, where he died. It is my opinion that Officer Storf and Sergeant Robin's concerns for the safety of the minor child were well-founded, and based on the mental state of Mrs. Anderson, their heroic actions very well may have saved others. 
According to her Facebook page, Anderson, who lived in Ocean Springs, studied at Mississippi State University and was a longtime veterinarian. Her Facebook page is filled with photos of her children and vacation travel. Just a, a crazy, crazy story. You don't expect to be shot by a veterinarian with a child at a Motel 6 at 2.30 in the morning after you've had a cordial conversation with her for 40 minutes. But that's what happened. Now, I looked her up using the, one of the databases that I had. Um, back in 2010, she was uh, cited for driving without insurance. She was cited for driving without uh, uh, a driver's license, but that was over 10 years ago. However, more recently in 2017, she had filed for bankruptcy. And so, and I have it, I have the stuff printed out right here. So there was something going on with her. Something. Now, where her other children were, I don't know. It does sound to me like this child that was with her survived. The child was not injured. Thank God. But there was certainly something going on with her, thinking that people were following her. I have to tell you, when I... um see something like this and when person who is a, like I said, a veterinarian has to go to medical school, et cetera, but they're without a driver's license at one point and they're filing from bankruptcy. I start thinking the person probably has a drug problem. And then we know that she stated somebody was following her. I don't think that this white truck ever existed, but that's what she thought. And she's checking into a motel six with a child at 2.30 in the morning, there was something going on with her, probably some sort of addiction. Of course, it could be just a good old-fashioned mental health issue, but very sad. But this just shows you, when we, if we were to translate this to disappearances, how something so calm goes so badly so quickly. She's talking to officers, 40 minutes, they're building rapport, and then all of a sudden she brings out a gun and shoots them. This is why I really, really, really never try to judge what's going on in missing persons' minds when they go missing. When it looks like they chose to disappear on their own because people are unpredictable. Very sad. Uh, I don't know if we're going to ever find out more about this or not, but it caught my attention just because it's just the type of shooting that is very rare. So... Moving on, uh, we've got three minutes left regarding Friday's episode. It is going to be a humdinger of an episode on Friday. We're going to start out, I've already recorded the first part of the episode, where I'm going to go through all of the murders very quickly um, that are contained within this idea of the Colonial Parkway murders. There are two women who were murdered in 86, uh, a man and, an, and a 14-year-old girl who were murdered in 87, and then in 1989, a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old were murdered together. And in there also, a woman was murdered by herself and a guy was murdered by herself. I just go through the generalities of each of those, all their stones solved, and just give some analysis of each of them. That takes up about the first 25 minutes of the episode. And then the second halves of the interviews are going to play. And when they are done, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the most popular theory that has been ongoing over the years. I'm going to look at it. 
I'm going to took, look uh, talk about some guys who have been suspected of maybe causing some of these murders. And then once I've compiled all that information for you, so you can have a um, a complete idea as you can within the, the, the span of time that I, you know, I've allotted for myself. Then once you understand all that and you've heard what the siblings of Keith and Sandra had to say about the investigation and everything that's gone on since, I will then start my own analysis of Keith and Sandra's disappearances by first pointing out the mistakes that were made in the investigations of the murders. Then I will go into all of the, not make, give you a list of all the disappearances that Unfound has covered that are like Keith and Sandra. And you may not realize this, but there are over 30 of them. And what do we think about them? What can we learn from them and apply them to Keith and Sandra's? Uh, disappearances. And then by the time the episode is over, I will tell you exactly what I think happened using all the information that has been accumulated on all similar disappearances that Unfound has covered since the beginning of September of 2016. I'm guessing that the, I'm hoping that the, the episode comes in under three hours. I make no guarantees. But the first one was, what, two hours and 48 minutes or something like that? So it's pretty much half and half. But that is what is going to happen on Friday. I'm going to record a little bit more of it before I go to bed tonight. I'm going to finish it up tomorrow. There will also be a corresponding video for part two, um, of course. And I have to have that all done by Thursday because I fly to Pennsylvania on Thursday. I will not be able to get any work done for sure that day. But it's going to be a unique episode. It's going to be a very in-depth episode. And you're probably going to maybe hear a part of me that only people in the think tank have heard before. So that's it. Uh, That will be part two. And I'm hoping uh, this can move the investigation forward. And most importantly, I hope this can begin to frame all of the murders and Keith and Sandra's disappearances in a new way. Because it's clear to me that pretty much everybody has gotten it wrong since the 1980s. So that's all I got. I covered a lot of stuff tonight. I think all of you uh, took in a spectacular live show tonight, if I may say so myself. And so I'm just going to leave you with that. Thank you, everybody. Um, Join this channel. Become a member of this channel. Hit the join button below. Patreon, PayPal. Subscribe, like, give this video a thumbs up. All that stuff. Deborah says, I just could have listened to six hours of it. Thank you very much, Deborah. I'm blushing. And uh, I hope you all have a beautiful, beautiful Christmas. And all of you will get to tell me about it next Monday when we do this all over again. Thank you so much. Great time tonight. Enjoyed it. Good night. See you, Charlie.